0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So, best question of the AMA collection was from at fiercerhan. How cool is that Shane Harris? Seriously, his segues are like from outer space.
2: Okay, can we agree that this was a planted question that Shane probably paid Fieser Han to tweet this question at us? Because I do love Shane, but we all know he's obsessed with outer space.
1: And also obsessed with how cool he is. And
2: with how awesome his segues are. And to be honest, I don't think I could do better on the segues.
1: So wait, um... Does anybody want to make a case that Shane is in fact not as cool as a uh, fiercer Han's planted question makes him seem?
0: I don't think aliens are that cool. And the fact that Shane just did a lawfare podcast on why we should talk to aliens or not is a little nerdy.
3: What do you it's, think? Nerdy is cool. I'm going to stick up for Shane because I like his socks.
1: His socks are cool. His sock okay, his, But
3: but what would aliens think of his socks? <laughs> I don't know. Do aliens understand socks? These are important questions. That's why we need to talk to them. This okay. is yes, this
2: is why Shane is right, and we need to be talking to the aliens. So we should
1: uh, this is a perfect segue. Uh <laughs> we should appoint uh Shane the official uh Envoy to aliens on matters of socks, much as Steven Seagal was appointed uh, the Russian envoy to uh, improve relations with the United States. Which brings me to Eli Sugarman's suggestion for the podcast that uh, quote I suggest a discussion of which Steven Seagal movie titles are most apt given his new role with the Russian MFA, i.e., is he now above the law, out for justice? Under siege. And to make this even better, Eli's brother, Zach Sugarman responded, the list is endless. Fire down below, hard to kill, marked for death, exit wounds, <laughs> <laughs> the patriot, okay. and also the foreigner. <laughs> I, I think we gotta go with the foreigner. No, people. no, I,
2: I'm with exit wound. <laughs> because really, um, the end of Steven Seagal's career as a dumb action movie hero was a wound for all of us who love dumb action movies. But I, I think the loss of Steven Seagal as a as an a, act-
1: a moral voice, as
2: an, <laughs> as an active participating citizen of the United States, is is a wound from which we may not recover. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Ask Us Anything edition. I am Ben Wittes of Lawfare and Brookings, who has ousted Shane Harris in a bloodless coup. And uh, it is summer, and we just decided this—we were going to open this one up for questions. Joining me in the Jungle Studio is Tamara Wittes, no relation of Brookings. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Shannon Togawa Mercer of Hoover and Lawfare, and Quinta Jurassic uh, uh, of Lawfare, managing editor of Lawfare. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. I we, love you too, honey. <laughs> <laughs> we have, uh, thrown Shane and Susan out of the jungle studio and opened it up for your all's questions. And boy, did you guys come through. Uh, so there are no segments today. There are no objects. There are just, uh, some meaty questions and some really not meaty questions. And we're going to start with some meaty ones and then go to kind of a lightning round of, of, uh, briefer more uh, yes or no kind of questions. Uh, so who's going to get us started?
3: So I will jump in. Um, so this one is from at Bryce Sub, who asks, assuming the president cannot be indicted while in office, can he be indicted and prosecuted after leaving office? If so, are there limitations on what types of crimes and when they were committed, campaign or in office? How does impeachment factor into this? To word it another way, what avenues exist to hold a president accountable for crimes committed before and during his or her administration?
1: So this question has a relatively simple answer, which is that it is not known whether the president can be indicted while he's in office, although most people assume he cannot. Uh, But it is very clear that he can be prosecuted after he leaves office, and in fact, it is clearly written in the Constitution itself uh, that he is amenable to criminal process after he leaves office in the normal course of justice. And so there are a few problems here. One is that if he's in office for a long time, you could uh, run the statute of limitations on a lot of offenses. Uh, So let's
2: just say obstruction of justice, for example, does that have a statute of limitations?
1: uh, So almost all felonies have a statute of limitations, and most statutes of limitations are in the five-year range, Um, not all. So one question is, what happens with statutes of limitations? Another question is, are there crimes that – and obstruction is a really good example of this – that apply differently to the president than to other actors. So, for example, if you went up to the FBI director and said, I really think you should back off on General Flynn, and you did it with specific intent to obstruct an investigation, you might have a – particularly if there were an element of threat in there, you would probably be the subject of an obstruction charge. On the other hand, if you're the president of the United States and you do that, there's a very good argument that you are acting within your Article 2 responsibilities and therefore the obstruction laws cannot necessarily be applied to you. So there is a question with any given statute of how would it Uh, appropriately be applied to the president. But the general rule is if the president commits a crime, you probably can't indict him while he's in office, and you certainly can when he leaves office.
2: Okay, but there's also a relevant distinction between uh, behavior that is in the course of um, your official role that might otherwise fit under the statutory definition of a crime and behavior that took place before you took the oath of office and became president that you would get prosecuted for, perhaps after leaving office. And I would argue that, you know, whether technically you could be indicted for obstruction of justice, say, that you committed while you were president sitting in the chair, the reason that we have impeachment is as a political remedy rather than a strictly judicial or legal remedy for that kind of behavior, because the presidency is a political office. It's an elected office. And so anything a president does potentially has a political valence. And that's why it's left to the other elected branch of government to make a political, not a technical legal judgment about the appropriateness or inappropriateness of those actions. That's what impeachment's for.
1: That's exactly right. But impeachment is Affirmatively not a criminal process.
3: Right. And I think that's, that's an important distinction, right? Because there, there is a separate argument over whether the universe of impeachable offenses is the same as the universe of criminal offenses, right? So say, if telling Comey, I hope you can see your way to letting this go doesn't constitute obstruction legally in the criminal code, Could you impeach the president for that? So I think the strongest voice saying, no, you can't, unfortunately, is Alan Dershowitz. He's pretty much on his own (laughs) in that. And I think there's a good argument, building off Tammy's point, that that is in itself an abuse of power, which would be impeachable, even if it isn't a criminal offense. There's also an interesting question of whether a president could be impeached for, as the writer suggests, crimes committed before the administration begins. And so hypothetically, we could create a scenario in which, you know, say that a hypothetical president is an agent of a hypothetical foreign power and colludes to gain the presidency. Could pulling some stuff out of the air here. This would never happen, (laughs) but I just want to throw it out there, right? Could that person be impeached for what they did before they took office. And I think that's a really interesting question.
1: But I I think that question in some ways gets over debated because I think ultimately the answer to it is yes. Uh, And clearly it's yes. So even the people who say that it's no, like Cass Sunstein, have this exception for cheating in the election, right? So if you were to say buy the election or buy a whole bunch of electoral votes, like, Cass would not argue that that's not an impeachable offense. And so once you create an exception, then we're just arguing over the details, what's within the exception and what's not in the exception. You know, what if Vladimir Putin bribed, at Donald Trump's request, bribed a whole bunch of electors? Like, obviously that's an impeachable offense for Trump to have been involved in that. And once you, once you say that, Then you've destroyed the principle that no, that nobody, nothing you do pre-presidential could possibly be an impeachable offense.
0: So we've had we've had some people write in with questions about you know where to read things about various questions they have about national security. What would you guys suggest are the best resources to help them sort of wrap their minds around what a high crime or misdemeanor or what an impeachable offense? is? Chapter
1: three of Charlie Black's book, Impeachment: A Handbook, written in seventy three or seventy four is uh i think it's called the impeachable offense and it remains the uh really the the great work on the subject
3: and you can find it on lawfare
1: yes that's true we published (laughs) uh, charlie black's uh we republished it as a lawfare post
2: okay so i'm gonna ask a question that was submitted by calamity jane uh, on twitter and Calamity Jane is a presence on Twitter that our our listeners may know because uh, she lost her mother and stepfather on flight MH17, which was downed by a missile over Europe four years ago. And so she writes about that. And she says, do you believe that the United States, as our friend and ally, has the political will or capacity to help Australia as we try to hold Russia to account, um, which I think is a really good and important question and also kind of a hard question to answer at the present moment, because if we were in a normal political moment or if we had a normal U.S. administration with respect to Russia policy, with respect to foreign policy, uh, the answer would obviously be, yes, there is will. Yes, there's capacity, but within a certain set of limits. Um, in the current
0: circumstance, we have to evaluate the question differently. I I think that's absolutely right, that this is such a difficult question to handle because we're in a situation that's absolutely e- exceptional and upsetting for that reason. I think the platonic ideal, as Tammy said, of an America that was allied with you know, like truly fundamentally and spiritually allied with the countries whom we say we are would have both the political will and the capacity to hold them accountable. But I just I'm pessimistic about that during this administration.
2: I will say, though, that the um that the report that was completed this year, which clearly lays out the evidence trail for Russian responsibility for uh, the downing of MH17 should provide a, a common fact base <laughs> For all of the countries concerned and should give the United States as well as other countries grounds on which to act, whether the action is in the form of increased sanctions of conditionality on various types of bilateral relations for the sake of accountability on this. And I think, you know, again, typically so in a normal world. Um, that kind of report would become the basis for UN Security Council discussions. It would become the basis for some multilateral action to try and pressure the Russians to accept some form of responsibility, even if it doesn't include an admission of direct responsibility for this action and for its consequences for the deaths of all these people. And it's, uh, I think, a manifestation of, number one, how uninterested the, the current U.S. administration is in multilateral diplomacy, um, but it's also a manifestation of how dysfunctional the uni- the U.N. Security Council has become, partly because of the U.S., partly for other reasons, uh, that we haven't seen that kind of action in the wake of of this report.
1: So I, I just think this is a situation where it's really worth distinguishing between the United States and the U.S. Administri- current U.S. administration. The United States is Australia's ally and friend. And the bonds there are real. And the idea that...
2: The Australians are the only other country that has fought with us in every every war.
1: And the idea that the United States is not committed to... Holding Vladimir Putin accountable for the myriad crimes that he has committed on the territory of our allies, i.e. in, in London, uh, and elsewhere in, in, in the UK, in Ukraine, in the skies, and, you know, elsewhere in Syria. Yeah. This is unthinkable. The commitment of the incumbent administration to these things is obviously more than questionable. And I think you have to bifurcate that and ask over what time frame you're asking that question. As long as Donald Trump is in office, uh, I don't think we can give you a lot of uh, hope on that. At some point, this country will wake up.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think... Along with the distinction between the United States and this U.S. administration, there's also the question of splintering within the administration. Um, I think Ben and I have both been fond of pointing out over the last year and a half of the Trump administration that the unitary executive, meaning that this image of an executive that acts as one, is basically dead. We have you know, there's statements coming from the State Department that conflict with statements coming from the White House, that conflict with statements coming from the Defense Department. That's not a usual thing. That's, that's not how it's supposed to work. And you see this also in, for example, speaking of the UN, Nikki Haley has taken a very strong line against Russia and the UN on multiple occasions, and which is obviously not consistent in the slightest with what the president has, has said. So the question, does the United States have the will? It's really, I'm sure parts of the government do, parts of the executive branch, and it's the president himself who really doesn't seem to.
2: Right, but I think that means in practice that the will isn't there because no matter what even a cabinet official like Nikki Haley might say or do, if your president isn't backing you up and he has no intention of enforcing what you say, then it
1: doesn't matter. The president speaks for himself, (laughs) said the Secretary of State. Um, (laughs) All right, next question uh, from Elizabeth Tsirkoff. Do you think there's any chance for progress in peace talks in Israel-Palestine as long as Netanyahu or Trump remain in power, number one? Number two, do you think Trump's disregard for human rights in crafting foreign policy is a significant departure from Obama's policies?
2: Uh, so, uh, Elizabeth is a fantastic writer and, and journalist. Uh, and these are two good questions. I think that on the first question, I would say I don't think Trump himself Is a necessary obstacle to progress in Israeli Palestinian peace talks. I've long felt that the fundamental obstacle is within the domestic politics of Israel and of Palestine. That is that while bare majorities at this point on each side of the conflict still prefer a negotiated two state compromise, neither Uh, side has a majority that believes the other side is willing to go for a two-state compromise. Neither side's public believes that that outcome is possible in the foreseeable future. And what that means, in essence, is that, yes, Netanyahu has his political preferences, he has his right-wing coalition, that constrain even his preferences. But more than that, he doesn't have an Israeli public that is pushing him to do anything differently, pushing him toward compromise, pushing him toward engagement. And the same actually is true for Palestinian society. So yes, we have Recalcitrant leaders on both sides and we have an American president who, you know, despite his rhetoric that he's seeking the ultimate deal, uh, what he's actually done on this subject has, if anything, I believe, carried us further away. I don't think that's the root of the problem. I think the root, the root of the problem is in the region. Um, and I think the work of building, renewing the faith of Israelis and Palestinians that peaceful coexistence is possible, uh, is a major undertaking. And it's not one that I think is going to be possible in the short term. Um, on the human rights question, I guess, I would say, OK, look, I, I worked a human rights portfolio in the Obama administration in the first term of the Obama administration when I think President Obama was giving a little more attention to these issues than he did in the second term. But what I would say is first term or second term Obama, Bush 41, Bush 43, you know, all of those had one approach to human rights and international diplomacy. And President Trump has something entirely different. Trump has essentially said and his senior officials have essentially said in confirmation hearings and public statements that human rights is an issue that basically doesn't concern them, except in very specific cases, uh, which are human rights violations in adversary states like Iran or Cuba. and. Whereas every other president has at least paid fealty to the values rhetorically, even if they don't always carry that through in practice, which means that everybody below them has been able to use that presidential rhetoric as kind of a backstop for their own diplomatic work. I certainly did. And I would carry presidential speeches to foreign uh, interlocutors and use them as a basis for my advocacy. So not having that for President Trump's administration is a huge blow For U.S. diplomats, it's a huge blow for NGOs and advocacy groups. It's a huge blow for democracy and human rights advocates all around the world.
0: Tammy, not to undercut from the first point that you made on Israel-Palestine and what the real root cause is, you mentioned that you think that what Trump is doing is essentially pushing us farther away from a deal. Could you speak a little bit more to that? What do you think about, let's say, the Kushner plan that came out earlier this summer? What's that doing?
2: Well, so no Kushner plan has actually come out. And I guess this is part of what I see is that there's some aspiration uh, but there isn't from Jared Kushner or even from Jason Greenblatt, who really has spent quite a bit of time climbing the learning curve on this. There isn't yet an engagement with the fundamental issues, what we call the final status issues that are as yet unresolved. Jerusalem borders, refugees, settlements. Um, those are the issues that have to be agreed upon between Israel and the Palestinians before there can be a peace treaty. And what we've seen so far about... What Kushner may come out with is that it doesn't actually address any of those. Uh, It's focused on improving the humanitarian conditions in Gaza, which is great as far as it goes, but that's not going to solve the conflict.
1: So at FWW, which is an awesome Twitter handle, by the way, (laughs) writes at Togawa Mercer, that would be Shannon Togawa Mercer. As someone who knows very little about trade law, can you explain to me the extent to which Trump's trade war violates norms.
0: Unfortunately, I do know very little about trade law. It's um no so <laughs> so I can I can speak to this at a, at a high level that many respected scholars have said things like this is the largest upset to the global trade orders
1: since Many, scholars, but, are saying, ev- many e- scholars are saying, saying. I,
0: this is this is me covering covering my own liability. Um no, so this is the most risky moment in the trade global order since 1930. 1930, what happened then was the United States decided to levy a number of unilateral tariffs under the Smoot-Hawley Act, which many of you have heard at this point. And that led to extreme consequences for us. And eventually, and especially after World War II, led to the formation of the global order that we know now under the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade and later the World Trade Organization. So we've seen this before. We've seen what happened. And it was revolutionary, right? And so I'm, I'm not saying when I say this. I'm not saying that that we have a concrete sort of pool of extreme activity that will clearly lead to some huge reformation in the trade order, but we do have a rapidly escalating set of exchanges Unilateral and bilateral exchanges between countries outside of the system that was designed to use them that are undercutting the system itself. So for instance, over the last day, we've seen the United States confirm something it announced a few weeks ago that it would levy an additional set of tariffs against $16 billion worth of Chinese goods and China responded today and said, we're going to do the same thing. And that is incredibly disruptive. There is a way to handle these disputes. And to the extent that the United States has problems with the dispute settlement body at the WTO, what they should be doing is what the EU has tried to do, which is to change or fix the dispute settlement body within the WTO. This is just a classic case of history repeating itself. So when you talk about sort of trade norms and whether this departs from trade norms, I think the answer is certainly it does. It has over the last sort of 70 or 80 years departed from what we've gotten used to. But we know what this pattern looks like. And that's the important thing.
2: You know, I... I guess it also goes to a fundamental component of President Trump's approach to world affairs in trade and in other areas as well, which is that these norms are norms that the United States established uh, because they worked to America's advantage, but also because they created a system of relationships between states that benefited all of those states, but benefited the United States most of all, in a way. And so that was, there was a certain theory of the case underlying that approach. And President Trump rejects that theory of the case. He really is a relativist. I mean, in a way, he's sort of a, a classic realist in international relations theory terms, which is that everything is relative. Gains are relative. Power is relative. And unfortunately, he thinks of that in very dyadic terms with respect to only one other country at a time.
0: Uh, and, and only one metric at a time. Like right. this is an extreme example of so rejecting sort of that norm. So it's sort of dumb realism. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but, but it really it's not just a
2: rejection of the norm. It's a rejection of the logic underneath the norm.
3: So one of the things that I've been really interested in, in in watching this sort of go on is Ben and I both at this point have written quite a lot about the sort of the presumption of good faith in the presidency and what happens when Courts and other actors start to think that the president is just making stuff up, right? And this is particularly interesting in the national security space because historically, courts have been very deferential to the executive branch. The executive says, we can't tell you that this is a national security concern. And the courts tend to give a lot of deference to that. And now on the sort of on the world stage, there's also an element of this trade war where the president or the administration says, well, all this stuff coming in from Canada is a national security threat. And why is it a national security threat? It just is. (laughs) And and what I find so interesting about that is that in the domestic space, there's obviously, there's a, a structure of other actors who are empowered to push back. As we've seen, people have sued. There are, I don't know how many, preliminary injunctions out against the administration right now on the international stage By the very nature of how the international order is structured, you don't have that. So there's a a weird sort of seeing the same attitude toward truth really manifest in a very different space. And it's I think we're seeing how destructive it can be.
0: It's that's such an interesting point to bring up and the frameworks between the domestic and sort of international evaluation of whether or not an actor is acting in good faith for national security concerns are slightly different. But this example of the sort of Section 232 tariffs is perfect for demonstrating when we need an executive to act in good faith in both realms, right? So the Section 232 tariffs here domestically give the president extensive leeway to determine what a national security threat is. And there's very little judicial or legislative remedy for that. And then on the international stage, what the president needs to do when challenged, the WTO, is to not only argue that this is a national security threat, but in fact, the U.S.'s position is that national security threats are non-justiciable on the international stage, which then sort of completely seeds this to the sort of good faith actor assumption. And the only remedies there are, let's say, the e- the U.S. leaving the WTO or the EU and the rest of the countries interested in keeping the institution alive, keeping it alive without us.
2: You know, Shannon, your refusal to buy me dinner is a national security threat. And there's just no argument. I feel powerless, Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> there
3: is.
1: There All is. right. <laughs> it's, amazing. it's
2: amazing how that works.
1: Okay. So, uh, this is the last question we're going to throw open to general discussion before we go into our uh, lightning round, and I'm going to start it with Quinta Jurassic, but we're all going to talk about this. If you were Paul Manafort, what extravagant luxury item would you have bought to launder money and why? This question comes from uh, at Julie Reinstrom. Who uh, gets a special shout out for this particularly awesome question? Quinta, get us started. What, 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 what were the big Manafort missed opportunities?
3: Yeah. So the obvious answer is you know the enormous amount of rugs that he purchased, and which I don't, I still don't think we know the location of. And I'm waiting to learn that. But given that rugs are already taken by Manafort himself, I'm going to go with what the Onion suggested the other day. Um, I think that headline was, Unrepentant Paul Manafort Enters Courtroom in a Coat Made of Live Puffins. (laughs) (laughs) I would get a coat made of live puffins.
1: Well, I also, you know, The Onion also had a wonderful uh, story. The headline, I think it may have just been a headline on a photo that said, Extravagant Persian Rugs Turn Out in Show of Support for Manafort. We found them. (laughs) Which was, you know, I thought beautiful. Yeah.
2: So I, I actually was puzzled by the, um, extensive discussion in the courtroom over the past week about the clothing purchases because clothing is actually a really bad category through which to launder money. It depreciates, especially high fashion clothing. It depreciates as soon as you purchase it, especially ugly, high fashion. Wow. <laughs> well, you, you, you two have
3: both put a lot of thought into this.
2: Well, so I could only conclude that he bought things like the ostrich Coat? Was that? The it? ostrich jacket with like a an matching an ostrich leather. vest? Because he actually wanted it. There's, <laughs> there's no investment value in that. okay? So that I just I, I found fascinating and I want to understand the mind that looks at an ostrich coat with a matching jacket and says, that really is me. Um, but if I were buying something that would hold its value to actually launder money, An exotic menagerie might be one because I think those animals, as long as they're healthy, probably have good resale value. Um, Thoroughbreds, right? And then, of course, there's always diamonds. They're a girl's best friend.
0: Shannon? Quentin and I were discussing this earlier, and my first thought was what could be a dual use item to launder the money? And naturally, Zeppelins, right? <laughs> you can put money in the Zeppelin and use the purchase of a Zeppelin to launder money. And then Quinta said something which killed my Zeppelin dream, which was, and just like Manafort, Shannon, you'll go down in flames. <laughs>
3: oh! I just want to say I grew up like 20 minutes from where the Hindenburg went down. I get to make that joke.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. I have no answer for you.
1: <laughs> well, I would buy gold cannons of course, <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, but you know
2: you couldn't fire them the gold is just yeah too i don't soft. think that would
1: work. i could fire your diamonds out of the gold <laughs> cannons <laughs> and, and just make more and just and we would you know it would it would be beautiful i'd make can baby cannon videos let's do it all right so we're going to go into our uh, lightning round and here's how it's going to work I'm going to start and we are going to choose a question, direct it at one of the other participants. That participant will answer the question, turn around and fire off one of his or her own to somebody else. Shannon Mercer, B.F. Jacobson at B.F. Jacobson writes, please explain your cat's name. I think rational security listeners want to know.
0: These listeners are playing hardball. Um, my cat's name is Leopold Wagner von Kornbred. And naturally, his name comes from his family lineage. He's of the von Kornbreds from Liechtenstein. This is exactly why I named him that. There's no more difficult answer. He does have an Instagram account, though, if anyone's interested, not that I'm plugging through rational security, but my cat has an Instagram account. It's at das Katpital. He has uh, various sort of Marxist, communist views. So, you know, choose wisely if you decide to go there.
2: We're, we're all about log rolling social media here on <laughs> rational security. I think that's fine.
0: <laughs> oh, um, OK, great. So now I have to ask another question of someone. Is there... A good primer for cybersecurity law for a technical non-lawyer. I think, Ben, you're probably the best person to answer that question.
1: There is a large amount of good material at a semi-technical level on surveillance law authorities, uh, both in writing and uh, Jonathan Mayer did a good set of YouTube videos on the subject. Uh, But I don't know of a general treatment of cybersecurity law that isn't quite technical.
2: Okay, so here's a lightning round question from our awesome friend Stephanie Carvin up in Canada. She asks, if someone was going to make a La Faire Russe cake, what should it depict?
3: So I've, I have pondered this question through my work with our lovely associate editors picking photographs to put on articles about Russia. Because the thing is that everyone uses pictures of St. Basil's that's not actually the Russian government. The onion domes are not what you want. So then the question is, what else is there? So we've gone with a photo of the Kremlin. I don't really know if you could do that on a a cake.
1: No, I think, I think,
3: I think, uh, Mm
2: -hmm. so first
1: of all, we got to say a word about at Stephanie Carvin here. I cannot confirm or deny that at Stephanie Carvin has a little habit of baking national security scenes in the form of cakes. Um, and
2: she may or may not be extremely talented at
1: decorating cakes. She may or may not be. And she may or may not have a thing about making national security scenes in fondant. So,
2: okay. So what should she do for that La Faire Russe? said? If
1: somebody, if sources close to Stephanie Carvin were planning to make a birthday cake for Lawfare's eighth birthday, which is coming up in less than a month, mm. and they wanted to make a La Faire Russe cake, and we were, say, going to have a party that they were going to be invited to at the <laughs> beginning of September, I would think Trump Tower with Putin as King Kong scaling it would be the gold standard against which everything else would be measured. I
2: like the the image of a bare-shirted Putin climbing up Trump
1: Tower. Well, above Quinta's head is... (laughs) Is the the Lawfare official sculpture of of Putin riding on a bear with no shirt? Bear
0: chested.
1: Yeah, bear chested. I'm
0: uh, gonna be ho- a kind to this intrepid baker and just say the most obvious answer is a cannon, Ben.
1: No, a baby. No, cannon. it's not for not La for La Faire, Russe. For La Faire Russe. It's gotta it's gotta be Russia themed.
0: Okay, so a Russian cannon.
3: Um, I I have a question for Shannon, which is from. At LizardShad614, which one of you could beat the hell out of Putin?
0: Okay, first of all, I want to question the premise of that question. Which one of us? It can be multiples, right? I think that Ben and I together would have a very good shot. I think that Lawfare has a technical article evaluating Ben's chances of beating Putin uh, if you want to read that and go into the details, I think Ben has a pretty good shot in his own and I would almost certainly be fine.
1: And I, I just want to say that, you know, I am very confident I could take Putin. But the one time I have gone mano a mano with Shannon, she kicked me in the stomach pretty hard and she landed one. And so I I would not. uh You would give re- Shannon odds? I would not. I would. I would take odds on Shannon. I, mean, I think like. I would, I would, you know, he's a lot older than she is. She's nimble. She's,
2: you know, so I'll give you points, Ben, for technical skill in
0: two different martial arts disciplines. But I think Shannon's cardio health is probably better.
1: Yeah, there's no question. The
0: point is, the answer is this room of people would be perfectly fine in a bout against Putin. I think we'd win. (laughs) All
2: right. Good answer.
0: So I have a question for Quinta that we've discussed in various contexts in the past. What would a storyboard outline? Oh, this is from at J Bordeaux. What would a storyboard outline for a post-Trump podcast look like? I mean, what would it look like the first day of a post-Trump era?
3: Yeah, so I think post-Trump podcasts could be read in multiple ways, and I'm going to take it as a podcast about the post-Trump era because I think that's an interesting way to think about it. I've been thinking for a while that we're all reasonably enough focused on the here and now at the moment because stuff keeps happening. But whatever... The day after looks like it is going to be a, a long and very, very hard slog. And I've been chewing on the idea for a while that what we really need to do is think about it kind of as a post-conflict society and that there are models for transitional justice that are actually very applicable. And so I think that what I would want to do is just sort of think about addressing how we got to this point, looking backward as well as forward, because those are the models that sort of people use and focus on it as a in the way that models of transitional justice do focus on having people tell their stories and forcing those responsible to answer um, in a context that they might not already have been have had to.
2: Okay, so you're thinking about like a truth and justice commission reconciliation in podcast
3: form, in podcast form. Very, very
2: interesting. I I tend to think of the necessary podcast after Trump as one that helps define an agenda for reform. In other words, I I think that the reconciliation process is going to have to happen societally. But I think what a podcast, a geeky podcast like this could do is bring policy experts and political people and people people together to talk about how we fix the institutions and the rules and uh, to make things work better. Okay, we have a lightning round question from La Septimuilay. Uh, one of our Twitter followers who says, did you guys name the podcast rational security? Because it's framed within the rat choice paradigm. Can you tell he's a political scientist? Or am I reading too much into that? Ben,
1: dude, you're reading too much into that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> only, only one of us on the podcast is a political scientist and. Let's just say I didn't name it.
1: Yeah, we we named it, uh, as I recall, Rational Security uh, because it rhymed with national security <laughs> and because we thought we would be that, talking sense. That's so the intellectual one, level one, here. One, <laughs> one, of, one of which premise turned out to be true. Um, OK. Um, all right. Here's here's a one for anybody who wants it from our former intern, Garrett Hank. What's a book that you want to read that hasn't been written yet? Presumably within the area of rational security's interest area.
2: Okay, well, I have a really easy, lame answer to this question, which is that the book I want to read that hasn't been written yet is the one that I'm writing right now. Because <laughs> <Yes, lame. laughs> it's kind of incumbent on you as a Brookings scholar. If there's a book that you want to read that hasn't been written yet, you better go write it. So that's uh, my book on U.S. relations with autocratic allies. Uh,
0: date of publication far, far in the future.
1: Shannon, book you want to read that hasn't been written yet.
0: This is going to be super boring, but I'd be really interested in a, com- a compilation of poetry invoking national security issues. How have people really felt about conflict?
2: Oh, but not like Natsuk limericks. You want like poetry. Okay, now I want
0: Natsuk Limerick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Quinta, book you want to read that hasn't been written yet. You should see the face that Quinta just made. I have no made. idea. Okay. Garrett, I did not put enough thought into this. At Garrett Hank, the book that I want to read that hasn't been written yet is the book you are going to write about the history of undersea cables. Beautiful. All right, we got time for one more. Tamara, choose a last okay. question. All right,
2: Ben, this one's for you from at Marcovelli. If something in the Mueller investigation, like a subpoena of the president, goes to the Supreme Court before Kennedy's replacement is confirmed, what happens?
1: Okay, that's actually an easy one, which is that when there are an even number of justices, first of all, probably nothing happens. There probably you don't have an even split. If there is an even split among the justices in any case, then the lower court opinion controls, uh, and the Supreme Court's ruling, however it rules, is not precedential. So if there's no Supreme Court majority for anything, presumably whatever the DC circuit would have done, which is, of course, ironically, the court that Brett Kavanaugh now sits on, and he would presumably be recused from any case involving the president who appointed him to the Supreme Court. So he would not yet be on the Supreme Court. The DC circuit would decide however it decides. It goes up to the Supreme Court. They cannot Agree, They have a 4-4 split and that effectively affirms in a non-precedential fashion whatever the D.C. Circuit would have done. So the system would function just fine. It's just that the Supreme Court would not pr- have produced a precedential outcome. And that brings us to the end of the AMA, not because we have run out of questions, although some of these questions are really nuts. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, I just want to say to all the. Some
2: of our listeners say, are as crazy as we are. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's um, a compliment. Yes. Um, some, of them are, some of them are charming and some of them are really deep and interesting. And we apologize for not getting to them all. That said, we are at the end of our times. So Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare page at www.lawfareblog.com rational-security, our snazzy new page. Today's episode was recorded by our audio engineer, Matthew Kahn. It was edited, as always, by our producer and editor, Jen Patya Howell, our music this week was performed by Steven Seagal and the foreigners. Nice. No actually this well brings done. me to our last uh, question that we're going to answer, which is from at Jz74, otherwise known as uh, as Jen Gen Z whom we love, she asks, what is the name of the Rat Sack theme music as performed by Sophia Yan? And the answer is, it is a, a wonderful piece by Astor Piazzolla, the the great uh, tango composer called Adios Naninos. Um, and the full uh, recording of it, which uh is, it's a, it's really a wonderful piece. Uh, you should look up on Spotify or on Google music or whatever you do, because it's, it's a, it's a, It's a really, really wonderful piece that we just have a little excerpt of. And that, of course, is the real case, which is that our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. And you should go and give us that five-star rating that we so deserve. By the way, I just point of personal privilege on the ratings. Lawfare podcast is a lot more ratings than Rational Security does. And you guys should fix that. And we'll talk to you next week.